Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. We have a returning guest today, Evan Burke, NFL coach turned speaker, executive coach, and podcast host. Evan is a speaker, former NFL coach, and podcast host who uses the sports world as his backdrop to engage audiences with thought-provoking lessons of leadership, team building, and create championship cultures. Evan's not your typical football coach. Despite not playing football beyond high school and no network in the coaching profession, Evan's unlikely football journey began as a fourth grade coach where he quickly worked his way up to the NFL in just six years and included coaching for teams such as the Miami Dolphins, UCLA, and SMU. After spending 15 years working with the highest performing athletes, coaches, and teams on the planet, Coach Burke uses his unique football coaching background to teach people how to utilize the same strategies in business and life that elite players and teams use to form at the world-class level. He also hosts his own weekly sports podcast, The Highest Level, where he reveals how championship team cultures are built and the keys to leadership excellence exist at the highest level. Evan's book, Finding Intangibles, is the reason we're doing a second interview today. In 2022, Evan released his new book, Finding Intangibles, How to Uncover the Hidden Traits that Drive Elite Performers and Championship Teams. Evan's book has been described as a practical guide that inspires readers to change how they think about peak performance and team building within a highly competitive environment. Through an exciting blend of dynamic storytelling and real-life case studies, Finding Intangibles, shares Evan's unique perspective, and reveals the framework for how organizations can update their approaches to focus on the influences that intangibles have on establishing a strong culture, building winning teams, and achieving competitive greatness. It's a great pleasure I welcome Evan to the show. Welcome to the show, Evan. Jason, thank you so much for having me back on the show, (laughs) and I'm really excited to, to chat with you again and dig into a little bit of my book. I know I got a little long-winded last time, so we didn't get a chance to cover it, but I'm excited to cover it with you here today. If there's ever an opportunity to have a second interview of a guest, it's definitely under these circumstances, because I had 
the pleasure of reading Finding Intangibles. Thank you so much for sending that to me. I really enjoyed it and it opened my eyes, even though I've never been on a professional team. It gave me insight. When you see, let's say, I'm going to bring up the Buccaneers because I live in Tampa, but when you see the Bucs play on the field, you don't think of all the steps and stages that existed to bring those players together into a cohesive unit and do what they need to do to get the job done. And I love the way you take finding intangibles in such a way where you can go through that process and apply your own personal experiences to it to uncover the, I would say, not a lot, not what most of us would consider or understand. And that's something that I really value about your insight is you're able to go and look at the process of recruiting talented athletes and advising the teams, look beyond talent. There's more to a player than just how they perform on the field. You got to see these other traits and character aspects of things. And one of the things I want to ask you on the cover of the book, you have a pyramid and it says at the top, finding intangibles, then it has team fit. And on the bottom, it says talent as the minimum requirement. And I wanted to, it looks like the food chain, basically. And I wanted to ask you what made you arrive at that cover in terms of your concept for your book and just tying that into the recruitment process as you describe it with reference yeah, to care. Yeah, sure thing. And just to pick up on, on what you were just saying, throughout my 12-year NFL and college coaching career, I was seeing a pattern where all of the teams that I worked for early on in my career and a majority of teams take a strictly talent-based approach to building their teams, to acquiring players and evaluating players. It was not very often that the discussion in the room turned to what type of work ethic does this young man have? What type of passion do they have for football? What type of teammate are they? And I really felt even early on in my career that these were the traits that really were important and that should be talked about. And I just didn't see them talked about in the rooms I was in. But I think as I grew and mature in my, matured in my career, I started to study the really great teams, the teams that were able to sustain success, looked at some of the coaches that I had the opportunity to work with, the very best coaches I worked with. And they all thought the same way. And that's how they prioritize the character evaluation almost more than the talent evaluation. And you brought up the pyramid or the inverted funnel, if you will, on the front of the... And really what it is, it's representative of what a talent acquisition process can look like. And you mentioned the bottom, the foundation piece being talent as a minimum requirement. So there's really three filters that... I built out. And I think a lot, it's interesting, the exercise of writing and specifically writing a book on something you think you know a lot about. And I would think that I studied this for 20 years and I thought this was going to be easy, but I think quickly after I started writing it, I had this feeling of, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of that feel was good because it made me exercise my mind and the thoughts that I had but what I tried to do was simplify a lot of the thoughts that I had, right? There's 30 different intangibles I could have dug into, but I didn't really want to do that in this book. I really wanted to bucket where the different intangibles lie. And the same thing for a talent acquisition funnel. Teams can have different criteria that they build their teams on. This was what I saw was the most common model and what my prescribed model would be. That first filter, talent as a minimum requirement. The bottom line, if we're talking about any high-performance industry, is that you have to have talent. 
And in my book, I talk about the talent paradox. The talent paradox is talent is essential to success, but success is not determined by talent. And that was really one phrase that I felt encompassed the entire book, the entire philosophy, because I didn't want to prescribe a process that just focused on character without taking into account talent. Like the bottom line is we need talent if we're going to compete, let alone thrive in these highly competitive industries. So talent is a piece of the process, even though I'm prescribing going away from a talent-based approach, talent is necessary to get in the room, to get within the funnel, to be even considered on any team's quote-unquote draft board or evaluation board. And after you determine who has the minimum talent. So let's just take, for example, Jason, let's just take like the UCLA football team, just because I coached there when I was there. Okay. So if you're looking at a player and you're trying to determine their talent, yes, you're looking at their skills. You want to look at your own team and see, is this player comparable or maybe better than the players that we have? But really what you're saying is we compete in the PAC 12 conference and are the people that we're looking at with talent as a minimum requirement Do they have the talent to compete in the Pac-12? So that is the first filter. And once you determine that, the result is that now you have eliminated everybody that can't really compete at the level that you compete at. And then you've also created a list of people that have that talent that can compete in the Pac-12. Now, the second level of the talent evaluation process is, do they fit the team? as I term, team fit. And there's really probably two areas that are really considered when we say team fit. The first area is system fit. So for sports teams, you typically have a style of play. In football, for offensive teams, you have balanced teams, you have run run heavy football teams, offensive systems, and then you have pass heavy offensive systems, or maybe like an system. Basically, you have a style of play that you that you have for your team and certain skill, certain skills and certain skill positions do better in certain offenses versus others. So there is like this idea that like we need to understand what skills can be amplified within our system. And we also need to understand what skills really can't be utilized to their potential in our system. Just because you have a ton of talent and a great skill doesn't mean you're a fit for every system. Now, this talent evaluation, obviously, look, if you are in any high performance business, like there is just a certain amount of talent that like you're going to be successful no matter what. Regardless of what basketball offense you run, if you have a chance to add LeBron James to your team, like you add LeBron James to your team, right? Let's just get that out of the way. Like there are certain skills and talent that just far surpass anything that can be considered here. But for a lot of players, they may be on the fringe in terms of talent, but their skill set might just be amplified exponentially within a certain system. At SMU, when I was there, we played a very pass-heavy football system. And so smaller, quicker players that honestly could not have competed at the same level as the schools SMU was competing at because of the offensive system that we ran and because we specifically needed smaller players that were very quick and could run very crisp, precise routes, like that was all we needed them to do. 
So whether they were 5'10 or 6'4, we didn't care as long as they could be quick and run these precise routes. And that ended up resulting in a lot of success. The other area of team fit is culture fit. Does this person fit the culture here? And I like to say that every person, every player you add to your team that you bring into that locker room tells everybody on the team what you stand for as a leader or as a team builder. Right now, Deshaun Watson is somebody who's in the news, unfortunately, for terrible reasons, has been accused of awful things. And a team, the Cleveland Browns, went out and acquired him, paid a ton of money, paid a ton of capital for him, but then also turned around and gave him the best contract in the history of the NFL. And so on one hand, they got a super talented player. But on the other hand, they got an incredibly, I think questionable is probably being too character to bring into their locker room. And like you probably can tell the Cleveland Browns don't really have that strong of a culture determined by the leaders of the team who made this sacrifice for talent and foregoing whatever culture they had in there. Because you can say, oh, football players don't care and they just want to win. However, there are executives on that team. There are players in that locker room that have wives, that have daughters, that have moms, some of who some of whom might have actually been in that profession, been masseuses, been chiropractors. And what does what do they think about having a quarterback that's been accused by almost 30 women of some type of misconduct? So you need to consider the culture fit as well as the system fit. And then the third piece, and I won't dig too deep in right here, like you said, is finding intangibles. And ultimately what this is about is do they possess the traits, the intangible traits, the hidden character traits that really are the result of people's success in that profession? I was talking about being quick. I was talking about being big or whatever your talent level is. That's all great. But if you don't have a growth mindset and you don't have the ability to fight through challenges and you don't have the ability to become stronger when you face failure and understand the value of failure and you don't really have the passion to be great in the consistency of showing up every day and being a good teammate, I would make the assertion that you'll never be successful regardless of your talent level. Even somebody with LeBron James's talent level If they don't have those intangible traits, they won't be successful. And I've seen it. And I have seen it with super talented players that have everything in front of them and that do not possess these intangible traits. That was really long-winded. I appreciate you asking that, Jason. I've not been asked that on all of the media interviews and podcast interviews I've been on. Nobody has asked me about that. So I apologize for getting super excited right off the bat. Listen, we got a few of these to go. I get to nerd out today. I told you marking a big benchmark for myself. I'm being able to do this more full time. And as such, I enjoy being able to get into the meat of the substance of this topic because I find it fascinating. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about as a follow-up is obviously character is a very important trait to look at when you want to look at the intangibles for potential players for a team. I love the word, the ripple effect. And you use that word in chapter three of your book. And I look for synchronicities, even as I'm reading your book today, and you happen to describe Tom Brady joining the Buccaneers on page 17 of your book to to discuss the topic of the ripple effect with intangibles. And what I loved about this is the example of Brady. I think you said, and I'm ad-libbing a little, that before Brady came to the Bucs, I'll just ad-lib and say they struggled to have 
the right mindset to be able to win and on the field and off the field. And when Brady came in from the example I saw, you basically said that Brady brought a higher level of pursuit of excellence by raising the standards of performance for everyone else on the team. That when you took Tom Brady and he came to the organization, he had his work ethic, intelligence, leadership abilities, and those intangibles such as competitive attitude and focus helped create ripple effects for the team. And I wanted to see if you could explain that a little further for our audience, because a lot of times people don't think of what type of ripple effect adding a prospective player can be to the actual team's culture. Yeah. And this is where I think that a lot of the power of adopting this type of approach can have. And yes, it's through the lens of building a team, specifically in sports. It could be any high-performance team. But this also is true in life, right? Like the intangibles of your friends and the family and the people that are close to you have ripple effects on you, right? We've all been around people who are just always miserable and always (laughs) negative. And you can feel it. Like when they walk into a room or that deep sigh that like your coworker keeps giving. Roll the eyes. You're tired. We're all tired. It's Thursday. We're, we'll be home. We'll be home for the weekend here shortly, but enough. And I just believe firmly that like that is super important, even if you're not a star player. And I think it becomes even more important when we are talking about the star players, because for me, having a football background, like I have a firm belief that your quarterback for football specifically, like your quarterback has to represent everything that your culture stands for. And your quarterback needs to be the hardest worker on the team. And football is a unique kind of sport just because the quarterback does have this disproportional amount of influence over everything in terms of success within the game. But I talk about this in my book too, where you have to understand the environment that you compete in the sport of the sport or just the industry that you compete in. And like in football, quarterback is more important than any other position on the field. And specifically back to Tom Brady is we all look at Tom Brady and we think Tom Brady as MVP quarterback, best player of all time, standing on the red carpet, arm in arm with Giselle. That's how we picture Tom Brady. But we don't really ever think about Tom Brady and like what he had to go through to even have an opportunity to play for the Patriots. And his story is definitely one of getting knocked down, trying, attempting to replace him, overcoming players that are vastly more talented than him. A lot of people forget this. In 2000, Tom Brady was drafted in the sixth round and he was a backup. We all know that story. But what, what is often overlooked is that the starter for the New England Patriots was Drew Bledsoe, who had already led the Patriots to the Super Bowl once, had in that offseason before Brady got there, signed the richest contract in the history of the NFL at the time. And look, I've worked with quarterbacks. I have studied quarterbacks for 25 years. I know a lot about quarterbacks, so I'm just going to say it. Like There is probably no greater prospect to come along as a quarterback in the last 40 years since John Elway than Drew Bledsoe. He's 6'6", he's 250 pounds, he's the number one overall draft pick, and he's got a golden arm. Like He is the prototypical quarterback. He's everything you're looking for on paper, right? And to to not only show up in that building with the attitude of, I'm going to be the starter here, but I'm going to overtake 
the best player in the league at my position, the most talented player in the league at my position. Oh, and by the way, the highest paid player in the history of the sport. That would be equivalent to uh, Patrick Mahomes being replaced by somebody who none of us have ever heard of right now come this upcoming season. So I think people forget that. And you have to understand the type of attitude and the type of mindset and passion that Tom Brady had to have to show up every single day and treat every single day like the future depended on it. And he's talked about this in a lot of documentaries because like, he knew that if he screwed up his three plays in practice, Belichick was going to yell at him and he was not going to get any plays the rest <laughs> of the week. Right. And here's a guy who continually overcomes more talented players than him, continually elevates his game and the game of the players around him. He was not a great quarterback when he came into the league, hence being a late round draft pick. And even remembering back to watching those early Brady years, like he was not talented. He had to grow into becoming this great quarterback. Like, he is a perfect representation of everything that this book is about. And obviously, I'm a huge fan of his, and I love him as just a player, and his story is what I think makes him so great. And specifically with the Buccaneers, like the Buccaneers are an average team. They cannot get out of their own way to win. Oh, and by the way, they drafted the most talented player coming out of college in Jameis Winston, number one overall. And that didn't work out. So it's like I saw time and time again how people were like Jameis Winston, like he's going to have the skills to do it. But nobody ever says, yeah, does he really have this mindset to elevate himself and the players around him? Tom Brady definitely does. And I think the thing that separates him, and I think I might have quoted this in the book, they thought that the players in Tampa Bay thought before Tom Brady arrived that they were doing everything that they could. They just thought Things weren't going their way, just some bad breaks, a couple of interceptions and mistakes in these games. They could have been totally different. And Tom Brady shows up, who I'll just say it, the absolute greatest football player of all time as we sit here right now. Tom Brady shows up and he's showing up every day at 5.30, 5 a.m. He's the one sitting in the room watching film running the film sessions. And like it dawned on everybody in that locker room. Oh, none of us are doing what it takes to be successful. Once they saw Tom Brady and the work that he puts in and the way that he took care of his body, then they all understood, oh, none of us are doing what is required to win. Now, it's awesome to have a guy like that who's a good guy, whose people want to be around and it's infectious and he can say, hey, I'm bringing you guys with me. But that's where I think the ripple effect, the true ripple effect can have like a huge impact. We're talking about something very exponential, the quarterback of an NFL team. It doesn't have to be that. It can just be, if you're talking to somebody who, a team that's struggling, it might just be adding one person and they don't necessarily have to be a huge, like the best performer. They can just have their own ripple effect through their intangibles on their team too. And the people around them very passionate about this. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because I do think Tom Brady is the best example of this. And it just so it would have been a great story if they had made the playoffs or, or gotten to the NFC championship. But the fact that they were able to go to the Super Bowl against a highly regarded team in the Kansas City Chiefs and honestly totally dismantle them, I think proves there were they were the same team from the year before outside of having Tom Brady at quarterback. And so it really just shows that you can have all the pieces in place. You can have ultra talent on your team and it doesn't result in winning. It's this other factor. It's these intangibles that Tom Brady brings that really 
make him truly great and make his teams great. I want to ask you about the actual, you got pretty in depth with the recruitment process and I never had a chance to really look at that before. And it's so interesting to think that there's ways that players are evaluated before they even get on the field. And I wanted to see if you could talk about character assessment in terms of how you would recommend in your book, coaches and scouts, potential recruiters should look at players in terms of their character as one of the factors to consider when trying to assemble the alignment between the player and the culture of the team itself. Yeah. And I think just to clarify, I think a lot of times we hear character and we misconstrue this for politeness. And I just want to like clarify that character or the intangibles, as it were, it's really about these characteristics, these traits that really make up who a person is. And that is what I define as the character piece. So I think one of the really important things, and I'll try and make this as general as I can, so anybody on any team can apply this, you need to understand what are the traits that the best performers in your industry have or the best performers on your team have? Like what make them great? And really challenge yourself because I think a lot of people look at someone like Tom Brady and they're like, oh, he's 6'4". He throws the ball 60 yards. That has very little to do. There's a lot of guys that are 6'4 and can throw the ball 60 yards that are not seven-time Super Bowl champions. And yes, situations matter. But my point here is like the all the other things that Tom Brady brings to that team in specific to football I talk in the book about finding mindset finding heart and finding team players in football specifically those are like the three main traits that you need heavy on one end or or a combination of the three and obviously someone like Tom Brady or people that have all three are extra special and, and do create huge ripple effects on your team So regardless of your industry, you need to understand what truly makes people successful, not their talent, not their skills, but what are the traits that really make them successful? And then start reverse engineering that. If you want somebody that has the ability, I'll take baseball, for instance, baseball is a game of failure. So in baseball, you're failing 70% of the time. If you're great, (laughs) if you're average, you're failing 80% of the time in baseball. So it's not having a great player that can hit the ball or hit stri- hit curveballs. It's about somebody that can fail and like always showing up. They keep showing up and they keep trying to get better. And they understand the value of failure and they understand that baseball is a game of failure. And I'm sure we could bring on 10 scouts right now that all have 10 different stories in their careers of guys that had everything checked off on the list, but they couldn't get over that mental hurdle of dealing with that failure. So you have to understand the industry that you compete in and then reverse engineer, okay, what makes people successful in this highly competitive industry? And then you have to ask yourself and challenge yourself, what are the ways we can uncover this throughout our evaluation process? For football in particular, if you're recruiting a young man, that might be 18 months, 12 months. You're trying to like find information on them, getting to know them, building relationships. If it's pro sports evaluations, those could be two, three years, four years sometimes based on the talent level. But if you're a team that is, you're building a sales team, you might have what, a four week? interview process, maybe that might even be a little long. So like, how are you going to find the traits you're looking for in a short period of time? And then what 
understanding the type of exceptions that you want to make, depending on getting as possible. I think a lot of this goes back to understanding a person's story and understanding like how they got to where they are and who they are. And I think if you can define that, it can answer a lot of these questions for you specifically around, do they possess these hidden character traits that we do look for in our players or on the people we want to bring onto this team? I love the way you refer that when you're, I was laughing a little, you're talking because I see like the movie, the bad news bears when I was younger, just like a team that fails and tries to do everything they can to come together, overcome the challenges associated with being on a team. One of the things I look at when I'm approaching all this is, and just from my outside point of view, being a non-coach and just like a neophyte here is as you're talking about coaches and teams and, and looking at intangibles in the recruitment process, how would you recommend that coaches and teams look at reviewing multiple sources of information about a prospective player when they're considering intangibles and the culture of the team itself and whether or not that player will align with the success of what the team's looking for as well as fitting within the culture? Yeah, great question. So I think start with culture is like understanding who you are as a team. And if you're not that team yet, understanding who you want to be as a team. And I think a lot of teams and leaders specifically go wrong is that they think that the word culture suffices for culture or they point at the words on the wall that have been up there for the last two years since I got this job (laughs) as that's our culture, right? So like a a very common thing. And I saw this early in my coaching career is, Hey, we're a tough, smart football team (laughs) guy. Jason, do we not say it every day when we come in this room? We're a tough, smart football team. What does that mean? How does that boil down? That's a great question. Now, 22-year-old Evan Burke that's just there to pass out Chick-fil-A's and is just happy to have keys to the building isn't going to bring that up. 39-year-old Coach Evan Burke probably going to raise his hand day one, hour one, when that keeps being said and there's nothing to support it. And so I think that's really important, right? Like you need to understand, number one, who you want to be, but then you need to create alignment, a lot of teams don't create alignment. They think vision is the key. Vision doesn't mean anything. Alignment is where all of the power in a vision comes from. I can sit in this chair right now and I can say, I want to become an actor in Hollywood. Okay. But me sitting here creating that vision doesn't mean anything. Me having no talent to to become an actor. Okay. We may not be in alignment. There may not be anything realistic, but my point is, are you going to move to LA? Are you going to take acting classes? Are you going to put yourself in positions to become a better actor, to realize this vision? Like that alignment is where the power is. Creating a vision doesn't mean anything. And I think culture is the very same way. Saying you're a tough, smart football team really doesn't mean anything. That makes you feel good as a leader, which is rooted in your ego, which by the way, nobody in your in that room cares about you or your ego. And that doesn't mean anything. And like the best leaders I was around, they talked about it specifically every single day. And like in a football team, like you need to define it in terms of core values and habits. And so like the best coach that I saw, Frank Gann Sr., when I was at SMU 2007, or excuse me, 2008, when he came on, when he joined our football team, he talked about, we're going to turn this program around. We were the losing his program in, in America at the time. He was like, we're going to turn this program around and we are going to build a culture of the small win. And how are we going to turn this culture around? One small win at a time. 
Who's going to do it? There's no championship foundation here. Who's going to build it? You are. One small win at a time. Now, what's a small win? And he went down. He defined it. Hey, like when we're in this room and we are meeting, we're taking notes. We've got our notebooks out in front of us. Now, keep in mind, we're talking to 18, 20-year-old college kids, right? You got to tell them all this stuff again and again. But we're going to have our notes out. We're going to take notes. We are going to, we are going to be disseminating great information for you as coaches for you to learn as players. Like that is going to give you a competitive edge. And so like we defined like that's a small win. That's a small win for us in towards moving to turning this losing culture into a winning culture. And so like he went through and defined like we're going to have high standards of preparation. He defined what the standards were. And then we also had a core value of attacking problems. So like when we didn't meet those high standards, he was excellent at showing our team in front of the entire team clips in practice where we are not upholding our high standards of preparation to each other. And so like we did this in a very public setting. We let it be known that it wasn't personal. We're attacking the problem. We talk every day, Jason, about running full speed to balance on kickoff. And this does not look like you running full speed to balance, correct? Correct? Yeah. No, you're not running full speed to balance. Get to full speed. And so like we had this way of calling each other out, holding each other accountable, and coaches were no different. And so like we went through and we defined and showed these players what the culture was going to be. And we had these core values in place. And I'm getting super fired up and passionate because I'm recalling Frank and Sr., a tremendous coach of mine. But I think like the key that I'm trying to convey is that like you need to have your core values. You need to understand who you want to be. And you need to match the players that you're bringing into your locker room to those core values. The Golden State Warriors right now are one win away from winning the NBA Finals. I don't know when this will air, but they just won game five. And they're a team that they have four core values. Compassion, competitiveness. I can't remember. I think the other one's like team collaboration. But the first one is joy. And if you think of Steph Curry, yes, he's a fantastic player, but he plays the game with more joy than I've ever seen any professional player play the game with. And so like when you have your core values in place, that's great. But when you have a transcendent player or the captain of your team or the best player on your team that fully represents the core values of your culture in every shape and form, that's when you really have the ability not only to win and have success, but create a dynasty, create this lasting, significant success. I just believe fully you're talking about culture. And I think like it needs to go back to understanding who you want to be. What does that look like? What are the core values? And really aligning yourself to those core values and not making too many exceptions. Because every exception you make is at a detriment to the culture and the team that you're trying to build. As you're saying that, and I love the word small wins. That's just in education or in, I was in my undergrad fraternity. That was something that was big for us. I would say this, and I'm just one of my reflective points after reading Finding Intangibles and my own take. With small wins, one of the things you mentioned also is a player's love of the game. And you hit on that. And one of the things I want to ask you is when you look at someone's love of the game, their passion, that je ne sais quoi, that might help someone like a Brady or give a player that, like Steph Curry an advantage. I want to ask you, how does that leverage in helping a team develop its culture around the intangibles when someone has the love of the game so strong? And let's say that they may not be the most talented, but their love of the game is just so obvious and clear. What would you do with that? 
Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is I would find every opportunity to showcase that person in any form or fashion that I could. You need to show your team what your culture is about and what your culture, who represents your culture. So like in football, we watch film of practice every day. For, so for the audience out there that's not aware, like in football, you film all your practices just like you film your games. And after you you put, you put practice on a two, you don't just go home and then come to practice on Wednesday. Coaches will go immediately and watch that practice film from the practice they just had earlier that day. And then in the evening, they will watch that practice again with the players, right? So you are not only doing the practice, but then the coaches are analyzing the practice, what went right, what went wrong. And then they're showing it to the players that evening, okay? And we talked very deliberately, and this was Coach Gans that first year that he was at SMU in 2008. Like, there is no foundation for winning. These guys do not understand what it takes to win. So, like, I don't care who it is. When we catch guys doing it right and doing the way that we want it done, we need to highlight them. And, like, I remember I had taken down in my notes, and I was, like, 20. Four, 25 years old. I was like super young. I had no idea what was happening, right? Like I just knew I was like witnessing a great coach, a great orator present to the team every day and just relishing in that experience. But I can remember writing down like a note to myself because he was showing like the lower level guys on the team making a lot of plays in practice. And I remember thinking as a young coach, I was like, these guys aren't starters. Like these guys, if these guys are ever playing for us, like we've got problems at SMU, right? Like talent wise. But it occurred to me that uh, he's showing the players who they can trust and he's showing the players how it should be. And so regardless of whether those guys ever play a down for SMU or whether they're going to ever make the winning play, they probably won't, but they can have an impact and influence on the people around them. And I think the NBA playoffs are about to end, but like I was watching the Dallas Mavericks, they made a little bit of a run this year and they had one of the things that stood out to them, even if a casual sports fan watched them is they had this bench and in basketball, especially pro basketball guys are very like it's pro basketball. We do this every day. This is our jobs. They're sitting on the bench. They just watch the game and the Mavericks had this team chemistry that you could feel even watching on TV because they had all of their teams standing up on the bench, something that you really only see college teams do. And a lot of people would dismiss that and be like, okay, what does that matter? That has no impact on that. They didn't score a basket. Like some of those guys are in street clothes. But if you listen to the Mavericks, they keep talking about this one guy, Theo Pinson. He, he didn't even dress. He didn't even play a minute in the playoffs. He didn't even dress for any of the games. He was in street clothes every single game. But like he was standing up next to the head coach, Jason Kidd, every single game cheering. And not only were the Mavericks commenting on it. Oh, yeah, that's Theo and his gang on the bench. But they beat the Suns, who were the favorites to win the championship this year. And after they put the Suns away, one of the star players from the Suns made a comment about it. Oh, yeah. Theo Pinson in that bench, man. Like, it, like that was no joke. Like, we could feel it. And it's okay. So they didn't score a basket. But the entire Mavericks team felt it. And the other team felt it too. So anyway, I'm just super passionate about these core values and aligning them. And then finding opportunities as a coach or as a leader to put those people in positions, regardless of how small the role is, where they can have a role in, in playing an integral part of the team, even if it's not on the court.
that's powerful when you think about it. You're looking at the whole, the gestalt. And when you have a player on the side next to the coach cheering the team on and creating that kind of momentum that the opposing side comments on it after they lost, that says something very high about that individual player's intangibles with their character and being able to lead in their own way. That's what I see. Leading in your own way. Like it's that opportunity of the ripple effect from the sidelines. Yeah. And if you can't tell Jason, like this book is really about building a winning culture. And I wanted to write a book about culture without using the word cult. And going back to my point a moment ago, like you have to define what it is you want your team to be and who you want to be and what you want your culture to be. And then you need to go find players that represent that culture. Very rarely are you going to come in as a new leader or as a leader period and say, guys, we're going to be a tough, smart team, right? You've got to get the, like anybody who's going into a new team, you need to get the guy, you need to get the wrong guys off the bus and you need to get the right guys on the bus and you need to get the right guys in the right seats. And if you show up and the best player is a piece of crap and not representative of your culture, first of all, if you first show up, like that's the best time to do it because you're never going to have as much leeway as a coach to do it. But you can't have a, a player of Tom Brady or LeBron James's status who doesn't buy into the culture. So you need to get people to buy into the culture, but you also need to make that stand to be disciplined enough to say, okay, this does not represent our culture. That's really hard to do when you come into people that have been ingrained in a certain culture. But then also what the people you're bringing in, you can't make those same exceptions. Like the New England Patriots can make exceptions. They've got 20 years of culture built up in that locker room. They've got strong leaders, locker room presence in that locker room that can stand up when somebody comes in and does things the wrong way and it doesn't need to be the coach. And that's when you truly have something special. I always like to say culture is culture is what happens when the coach is not on the bus. And that's obviously a sports <laughs> reference. But if you're coaching any, let's just say like junior varsity or varsity team in general, I don't care if it's boys, girls, whatever. If there is no authority on the bus, what happens in the 20 minutes that there's no authority on that bus? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it, whatever happens on that bus while you're gone is what your culture is. And that might be maybe breaking it down into rudimentary of fashion, but I truly believe that, right? If somebody starts acting a fool and is like, oh, I'm going to go grab the microphone and do whatever. Is there somebody on that bus that's going to stand up and say, hey, man, we don't do that. Because if somebody that has enough pull in that locker room or is the best player on that team stands up and says that, that's not going to happen. That person's going to sit down and be like, oh, okay, I guess we don't do that. But where you get tripped up is where people are allowed to do that. And so the stronger presence you have, the more exceptions you can make on the character side. But I guess like the paradox there is that like they're not making a lot of exceptions on the character side, as you can tell, because they've had success for 20 plus years. How about a professional football team that has a Tom Brady, but then they have an Antonio Brown? How does that show their recruitment of those two different players and how they act on and off the field? in terms of their own culture and their own pursuit of the right intangibles for the equation for the team to be successful and all it needs to do. Yeah, I think it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Who is the best wide receiver on the planet? But it's probably Antonio Brown. He's the best wide receiver on the planet. And he's unemployed. And he's been on three teams in three years. And he quit on his last team in the most unthinkable 
childish, immature way imaginable. Okay. So like he is 11 out of 10 on talent, like one of the best wide receiver talents in the NFL in the last 25 years, but nobody wants him on their team. Right. And like the only person that could wrangle him in and keep him semi-contained for a finite period of time was the absolute greatest football player and greatest teammate in the history of the NFL. So yeah, like you can, if you have that presence, you can make exceptions, but like to what end? Because now I, as a leader and putting it on Tom Brady, who I don't want Tom Brady chasing around Antonio Brown. Like it's not necessary. Like I want Tom Brady being here with the guys that want to be here, that the guys that aren't going to just go do their own thing. That goes into your category of the love of the game, right? If someone really loves the game, they'll be able to assemble themselves in such a way they'll fit within the culture of the team and they'll act in such a way to conform with the expectations of the leadership rather than buckle it and fight it and create controversy. Yeah. And deplete the team's overall ability to succeed. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, it goes back to what type of team you want to be, but also like you have to consider too, how are you bringing these people onto your team? Right. What do you value? A lot of, and let's just say like financial firms pay their employees a ton of money. And then they get upset when the employees like aren't bought into the culture or push back because they're not promoted every six months. It's like you invited that on your. Uh, now, there might be certain dynamics in the marketplace that you need to pay X amount of dollars for this. But again, like you are literally going out and you're paying top dollar for talent, and that's fine, but you're also going to get what you recruit. And so if you go out and you find those people who have that true love, yeah, they may not be the most talented, but you're going to end up creating something greater in the whole of your team by creating a collection of people who are all passionate uh, about the game. So I think it translates in it, it translates across boundaries, across sports and across industries as well. And again, it begins with understanding who you want to be and like how you want to build your team and then moving that as a north star to align all of your processes too ask you this. When you say it towards the end of your book that recruiters should talk to the invisible people, to the player, when evaluating the player's potential fit with the team, I want to see if you could touch on that for our purpose right now and tie it into what we're discussing. Yeah. The invisible people concept is really about talking to the people who that person that you are trying to find out about views as invisible. So as an example, in my book, I talk a lot about recruiting. So in the high school recruiting process, who is a visible person for a high school athlete? Their head coach, right? The head coach controls the playing time, talks to all the college coaches, regardless of sport, that coach is a visible person in that athlete's life. So what does that mean? That means that athlete fully understands that coach is talking to other college coaches, their playing time, hence their future prospects are tied to their relationship with that coach. Do you think that they're going to treat them true to their character? No, they're trying to manipulate in in a sense, right? So who in that building can tell you who that person really is? The people that that athlete doesn't think have a bearing on their future and how they treat them. So like the lunch lady, the front desk secretary, when you walk into the building, 
the athletic trainer. I used to make it a habit to go talk to the athletic, the academic coordinators in the building, right? Because that's going to give me the true indication of who this person is. I know what the coach is going to tell me. Oh, he's a great play. Oh, he's so good. Oh, that, yeah, excuse. Don't worry about that. He's awesome. I know that coach benefits from me as a UCLA coach recruiting his kid. But I had an instance, I went in and talked to an academic coordinator once. I hadn't even visited with the head coach. I just watched the kid's film and he was fantastic. He was awesome. I was like, oh my God, I have to go see this kid. I go into the academic office. I asked to meet with whatever, Miss Shirley. I walk in with Miss Shirley. Hey, Miss Shirley, I'm Evan Burke. I'm here with UCLA. I'm here to recruit. So I just want to know, what's your experience working with Jonathan like? She goes, Jonathan is challenging. (laughs) So here I am. uh, Now, by the way, I know everything I need to know about that kid right there. And whatever, we chatted for another three, four minutes. I didn't need to sit there for an hour and interview her. Like I knew the information I came to get. Now, I talk in my book, like you're finding the story. So where I made mistakes early in my career is I would totally take that as a snap judgment and just be like, write that kid off for everything. Now, going back, if I could talk to myself, I'd be like, okay, Evan, that's a good piece of information. Who else in this building can you talk to? Like the other people, like whatever, we all have it. Like sometimes you don't get along with people. Now, I w- that is one area I could improve on. But in the same time, like you can go either find a ton of information that supports that, or you can continue to find, oh, that was, a, I didn't find anybody else who found him challenging. So wait, let me go back to Miss Shirley and find out what's happening. So there is an element where you have to understand the story to understand like what you're hearing and not one piece of information is necessarily more important than the other. However, I will say that like in the same breath, like that kid, Miss Shirley just told me everything I need to know about. And like when you're in a selection process and it's going to come down to talented players, again, talent is the minimum requirement. If anybody is in our talent funnel, like I know they can play at this level. That's the benefit of the the minimum as a talent requirement. Like now you might be better than me, but if you don't bring the other intangibles and I do, then like I could easily be a better fit. What does it matter if I'm a five out of 10 out of talent and you're an eight out of 10 out of talent? Right now, like that's for the teams to decide what is the developmental profile? What do we want to take on? What risks do we want to take? And and so I've seen it also where I walk into a high school and it's like, I say a kid's name and it's like, everybody's like, oh my God, I love that kid. Oh my God. Like you're here to see Billy. Oh, we love Billy Cole. (laughs) And it's, I knew immediately, just as I knew on that other kid that I wasn't going to recruit him. As soon as I walked into Saxe high school and everybody started talking about Billy Cole and that he was the greatest human being that had ever walked through those doors. Like I didn't care that he was five, seven. I didn't care that none of the other coaches on my coaching staff liked him. I was like, I'm recruiting this kid. I'm going to offer this kid a scholarship. This is my type of kid. So I think even though, again, going back and recognizing my own faults, I would have told myself to continue to build out my story and find more information. I think that those invisible people that are telling you everything you need to know about that person. Because the people that are visible in that person's life, are it's predictable what they're going to tell you. I don't know if I had five coaches in my entire 12-year coaching career that quote-unquote killed a kid. Every coach says glowing things about their own kid. But the academic coordinator doesn't care about where that kid goes to college, especially if that kid's been a pain in that rear end for the last two years. And now's the one moment (laughs) that kid never thought was going to happen that 
coach Evan Burke was going to walk in and talk to Miss Shirley of all people. <laughs> but in my opinion, Miss Shirley is an invisible to, to Jonathan. So like Miss Shirley can tell me all of the answers to the test that I'm never going to get from talking to the coaches in the field house. So that's what invisible people refers to. It resonates with me because I remember as a baby lawyer 20 years ago, I remember my my, my higher ups in the firm I worked at say, make sure you're nice to any judicial assistant, the judge's secretary, make sure you're nice to like paralegals and those people even on the other side, because you never know where your reputation will take you. And if you treat people with respect and do things the right way and have enthusiasm, your love of the game, so to speak, it'll pay you dividends later. And you just showed that rather clearly as well as in the book. And I definitely agree with that. I think you need to treat everyone. You just never know. Even the quote, invisible people might have a determinating factor to give some guidance to someone who wants to evaluate your credibility and your talent and your credentials. And you're being evaluated across the spectrum amongst a lot of other highly competitive individuals. So that to me really resonates. I want to ask you, I was looking at, at the end of your book and one of the things you talked about is how one can measure the immeasurables. And I found that to be interesting. And I wanted to ask if you could tell us a little about your example, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots and how they grade their players based on three different dimensions of major factors, critical factors, and position skill. Yeah. And I think this is definitely one of the more challenging pieces, just to be quite honest, right? You're talking about something that is, is as I mentioned in the book title, it's hidden. This is not something that you can pick up on a magazine or a paper or find in the stat sheet. You have to go find these things. And so I think like trying your best to create a grading system or some type of measuring element within your evaluation process where you can say, oh, this person is a good fit in this regard or not. Specific to the Patriots, and, and by the way, they do one of the best jobs of any organization out there, whether in sports or beyond. And they talk about position skills. And one of the things the Patriots are great at is understanding like the strengths that players bring to the team. And in a second piece, which is like making sure that they put them in positions to be successful. And one of the common things I saw in my football career was he's this and he's this and he doesn't have this and he doesn't have this. And like coaches love to knock even their own players, because it's like a hedge of saying, I don't want to put my stamp on this guy 100%. And Bill Walsh has a great saying where it's like, I want to know what he does best. What does Jason do best? Okay, if Jason, whatever, runs the 40 the best, like I don't need him to run the 40. I need him to rush the quarterback or whatever. You need to make sure that what that person does best is something that we're going to ask that person to do nine times out of 10 when we're asking them to do a play, run a play for us. And a lot of people don't go that deep into it. So I think position skills is really like determining does this player, does this person's skills fit not only like this level, but also what we're going to be asking them to do. In football, Cooper Cup, just won the MVP of the Super Bowl this year. He had the one of the best seasons in the history of NFL wide receivers. And he was a third-round draft pick. He didn't even play in Division I college. And he was overlooked by everybody in the league. And one of the reasons why was, number one, he ran a 4.6240, and people thought he was slow. But the 40 time isn't a great representation of what actually translates to success being a wide receiver in the NFL, what translates to success is quickness and the ability to separate within your route, separate from the defender. Two things that Cooper Cup is probably the best at in, in the NFL, right? But you can't tell that 
threw up 40 times. So I think the position skills piece is really about understand what that person does that is specific to what the Patriots look for at that position, right? It's like, we don't need them to be fast, straight line down the field. We need them to separate from defenders and like identifying those specific traits that they're looking for. The second piece, which I think is major factors is really the athletic ability right? Like the talent level, the size, all of these pieces that kind of constitute being a pro athlete. What is their, what is their injury history? All of these things that kind of translate to the physical side that every position would have, regardless of what position they play. They all have a size, they all have a, a strength level, a speed level, and a durability or injury history. And then the third piece is critical facts, which critical factors are very much aligned with the intangibles that I talk about. And so I think they talk a lot in there about a player's coachability, right? W what type of program do they come from? Do they have the ability to play multiple positions? Do they have the ability to the mindset or the attitude and character that they are looking for as a football team? And I know teams that define character or football character in a bunch of different ways. But essentially what you're looking for is like a history of uh, failure or a history of overcoming adversity versus pure success. And so like in football, specifically with five-star recruits, and for anybody out there that doesn't know, a five-star recruit means you're like one of the best 50 players in all of high school and all of America. So if you have a five-star rating, you're probably going to a top college like Notre Dame, Ohio State, Texas, and you've probably been the absolute greatest athlete on every field that you've ever stepped on, like without question. And like none of your character matters because the talent level is so vastly superior to any. It's like LeBron playing against junior varsity guys. doesn't matter. And what you time and time again is that those highly touted high school seniors rarely have successful college careers, and they rarely ever make it to the NFL. And the reason is because they have developed a fixed mindset. All of their careers, all of their lives, since they were four or five years old, they have been told how great they are, how great a game they just play, how awesome they are. And there's also this other piece, if they're really supremely talented or bigger than everybody, where they really haven't had to work for it. Versus somebody that has had to scratch and claw their way all the way up the ladder. Tom Brady is a great example of this. Trying to them trying to him sitting behind six different quarterbacks at Michigan, him finally getting to the top of the depth chart, them acquiring the best player in the nation that year, Drew Henson, who was the top baseball prospect in the nation and the top football prospect in the nation. And like they continually tried to replace Tom Brady. And Tom Brady kept coming out on top. And look, we all missed on Tom Brady, right? Nobody knew he was going to be what he was, but it just gives insight into the players that have success are the players that continually overcome. Aaron Rodgers is another football example where he's the all-time, he's the second all-time greatest quarterback and wasn't even recruited out of high school. Had one 
Division one offer after he went to junior college, sat behind an NFL quarterback for three years in Green Bay, never playing. And so these guys that have that ability to get knocked down and continually get back up, have success And the five-star athletes that have developed this fixed mindset are never told about how great their effort is or about how great their practice is. They're only commended on the results of them being so supremely talented. Hence, when they enter into a supremely competitive environment, whether it's like in the corporate world or in sports, it's like they have a fear that they are going to get found out and they know they're about to get found out. And guys like Tom Brady type guys don't back and like they're used to the fight and the five-star guys are not used to the fight. That's why the University of Texas football team has not had any success in the last 15 years. And that'll get me on another hour-long diatribe. So I'll stop here. But uh, yes. That resonates. You know why that resonates with me? Because one, I have a lot of respect for people overcome adversity. Two, the fixed mindset, as you call it, versus the growth mindset. If you have a five-star player who has a fixed mindset, like you said, and they think they're the best since sliced pie, but they can't grow. They can't be introduced into a new environment where they're no longer, (laughs) if they're the big fish in a small pond, and now they're a guppy. In an ocean of talent in the NFL or college football, I just keep bringing that up as our example, but I could see where you could see their failure because they're going to be limited by their own mindset and how they approach challenges and what they do when they get knocked down. Are they a weeble wobble? Do they pick themselves back up or do they put their hands in the air and give up and walk away and walk off a field in the middle of a game? causing a lot of negativity to the team afterwards. It, it makes you look at it critically and evaluate it. And I appreciate your, your taking the time and breaking this down for us today. Because for someone like myself, coming from the outside, I'm not in the athletic world, but coming from the outside looking in, it really gives you a, an amazing point of view to see how team organizations, coaching staff, recruiters, individuals like yourself, who have the love of the game inherit within themselves to start at one level and work your way up. I quote you all the time now when I talk to people, by the way, ever since our first interview, I say, you can start at the lowest level and you could send out 450 handwritten letters, wait, and then get responses. I think it was like 10 responses and then an interview and then you get hired. That's your Miami Dolphins story. I love that story. I can't wait to hear you write a book about that particular aspect of your life in greater detail. But I just want to thank you for coming on again to to share Finding Intangibles with us and giving us the opportunity to really discuss these issues in greater length. Because I think when you look at the real world, when you look at life outside of sports, this all ties in. Like you said, you could recruit someone for a sales team for for your company, or you could recruit the next player from the high school, college level for your team sport. It doesn't matter. It's what you're looking at. And does it match the culture of the organization? Are you looking for these intangible things such as character and not just doing a base assessment on someone's talent and how they play a certain time of the year at a game? And I think that's what's, I just really appreciate you taking the time and really mapping out from your life experience, what we as general members of the public can look at our players differently, as well as sporting teams and organizational aspects of things. I want to ask you this. In hindsight, you just finished finding intangibles. You're you're doing things post-coaching. And I want to ask you, based on your experience, would you ever return to the coaching profession as in terms of athletics? Based on what you've been doing now, it sounds like you've really uncovered a lot and there's things that you can do and give practical pointers to those who are already still doing it, so to speak, in the trench. Yeah. I think that, listen, 
like I have always been passionate on a certain level about developing people. And I think that even from an early age, I always viewed sports through a leadership and a team building lens. And so if you can't tell the times I got a little fired up today, I'm still passionate about all this stuff. And I think that when we're talking about teams, obviously fit is a big piece. So would I go out and pursue it the way I did when I was coaching? I don't know if that's really for me anymore, or at least in, in the in this stage and the life that I want to live, the lifestyle I want to live. However, I will say that there's certain people I keep in touch within the profession that like, ha- if I had an opportunity to work with them, I'm working with them. I think that the time away from the game has made me very appreciative for my experiences, but it's also made me miss in a lot of ways. Look, like the juice associated with coaching you cannot replicate. I'm not going to lie to you. Like It's very cool to be on that plane flying to go play the Jets for Sunday night football. Like you cannot replicate. You cannot you replicate. replicate. Yeah. No, you cannot replicate running out of the Rose Bowl to play USC on like a BC Saturday college football. Like that is that there are very few experiences in this life that can replicate anything that I've had the pleasure to experience. But I think like when I look back at it, those aren't the things that I miss. The things that I truly miss is like building something with building something special with people that I want to build something special with. And you were like summing up my book a moment ago and it just made me think. And there's a couple of pieces that I think I would like share with people to like say, what is this all about? And I think like at the heart of it, whether you're, in a corporate world or sports, what this is about is like you are making a decision, adding somebody to your team to spend eight to 10 to 12 hours a day with them every single day, right? You spend a majority of your time with these people. What is the advantage of passing on somebody you think may not be a fit for you and your culture versus somebody who you think is a fit for you and your culture? The benefit of having of working with those people every single day or not. I was reminded of dating a moment ago when I was like talking about the invisible people. If your date treats the waiter or waitress like crap, run away. red (laughs) red flag, that's what they think of invisible people. That's who they are, right? That's the reality. I think a lot of us can relate to the dating analogies, but I think it's very true because it's very true in dating. Like, What are you looking for? Okay. Is talent slash Instagram body like the only thing? (laughs) That's the only criteria we have. Okay. You can have that criteria, but when you acquire somebody who is an absolute menace in your locker room or somebody who's an absolute drama, drama attractor into your life, and you didn't take any of those other factors into consideration, like that's on you as a team builder or as like, selecting who you're going to date. But I think it's all about who you spend time with or choosing who not to spend your time with when it really comes down to it is what this book is about. (laughs) And to answer your question in a very long-winded way, if I were to go back, it would be to work with people that I had a great desire to work with either again or work with once. But it's not something that I'm seeking out. However, I do find myself in that realm, obviously sharing those stories and, and I've done consulting with several teams. So don't think I'll ever be on the sideline coaching football again, but would love to work either with team ownership or team front offices, either teaching the principles of this book or... You're going to have others. 
doing some of the performance performance programming and leadership development that I already do with my clients. I'll say this. I don't mean to be calling you out, giving you homework about authoring other books, like how you got into the NFL, for example, but I see other books coming your way and I, I could see a prolific writing and presentation career for you coming on shows and your own podcasts. And look, finding intangibles to me, I didn't find any of your answers long-winded. In fact, I found it extremely informative. And for me, learning these concepts and applying it to my own life experience and being able to really internalize a lot of things that you wrote about, it, it gives me a, a newfound appreciation of, of team sport. And it makes me want to engage our sports teams from a different point of view. There's a lot that's involved. It's not just putting the players together, giving them a jersey and their equipment and saying, go at it. There's so much many more levels to it. And that's what I really enjoyed about your book is that you you peeled back the onion, so to speak, and gave us that chance. So I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and your amazing keen insight today with our audience. And for me, personal development, mental performance, and having one be able to maximize and up their game, so to speak, those are the concepts I think we're finding intangibles is very valuable. If you can show people what a winning combination would be for their culture and their organization and recruit those individuals that match that, you're creating a recipe for success on many levels. And like you said, the New England Patriots, they have the formula that's been working for many years. And it's because they know how to do these variable aspects of things and applying the intangibles into their recruitment process. So I just want to thank you. I'm going to share your information in our show notes. I'm going to share the information about your book in our in our information. And I just want to thank you for coming on. I definitely leave the door open to you that when you have these other things coming out, I want to make sure you know that our platform is available to share this information with our audience because it's been a treat having you on. Jason, thank you so much for both opportunities. It's been really enjoyable. You've asked some really great questions that I haven't been asked on, on other podcasts. So this was really fun for me. You got me fired up a couple of times. <laughs> so I love it. And uh, yeah, I still remember the last time that we spoke uh, that we that you interviewed me, planted that seed on the on the next book. And we'll definitely be hitting you up here in the near future uh, on my next project. Oh. But just once again, thank you for your for having me on and for your interest in finding intangibles. And for this fun conversation today, this was really great. Thank you. When you become an example for me to go and point people to of somebody who can overcome the adversity and make something in such a way where you're creative, you're like, hey, I'll start with the Chick-fil-A. doesn't matter. I'll work my way up. I'll do like that to me that like you might have finding intangibles as your first book right here, but I see multiple others. And I definitely think your personal story is going to really resonate with a much wider audience beyond sports. So that's where I'm looking forward to seeing your future potential and what you're going to do just by what you've done already. I appreciate that motivation. I, for whatever reason, it was like, instead of writing the simple book, which would have been my (laughs) path to football, I was like, let me pick a super complicated topic that there really is no (laughs) research on. And let me dive into this for my first book. Maybe that's just my nature to do it the hard way. But I I like your idea of just retelling my story. Easier way to go for the second book. During the interview, when we were in the last interview, and people can go back and listen to it. But I prepped for the other interview. And I was like, wow, what an amazing story that you did this and you've created these opportunities for yourself where an average person will look at it and say, how do I do this? I don't know how I I never played football beyond X and here I am. Poof. The Miami dolphins. No, you have to break it down. And what you did with finding intangibles is you took something that's intangible, right? 
created a book, little play on words. And now this is going to exist as your backup and your backdrop. And now these other books are going to fly in and go where you've gone before, so to speak. So I'm excited. Really excited. Thank you for that motivation. I like that. That's inspiring <laughs> me here. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I just want to thank our guest, Evan Burke, for coming back on the show today and sharing finding tangibles with us. I really enjoy being able to take concepts that we don't normally talk about readily on the show. And to me, this is so notable. We're going into another football season, for example. And when you think about the teams as they prep for their next season and they go through practice and you watch them on the field and you'll watch the the game, for example, and you'll see where some players make mistakes and you'll see some struggles with the team and you'll have the press conference afterwards where the coach comes out and talks to the press. We see those little sound bites and we think we know team sport, but in reality, we don't. There's a lot more beyond the layers that we don't get to see. And I think finding intangibles and having Evan come on the show can give us perspective about other athletes and the pressure they're under, the organizations, and just what would make the great recipe at this point to help a team build up its leadership, its character, and all those things that you just don't get when you look at the surface is what finding intangibles is about. There's a process involved with this stuff. And I just think it's fascinating to be able to start talking about, raise awareness of these things so that you can really help each other understand not only what the players are going through, but what the organizations beyond and everything else. It's a lot of details and it's a lot of aspects that we really need to look at. And in order to achieve greatness, there's a lot that you got to do. And it's not just showing up. You got to put in your full effort and you got to have that right mindset. And to evaluate someone who's like Evan went out and recruited new athletes. It's not just about the athlete and how they perform on the field. There's so many other things that you need to consider and look at. Check out this book, Finding Intangibles. I'll have the information in the show notes. I really enjoyed our interview today and I'm just so excited to be able to present this so we could have some real life application of concepts beyond just the field. And the intersection for me is spirituality, athleticism, mental performance, all those things tie together. We're gestalt. My, my approach with things is we're all gestalt. We're a whole. And when you look at someone like an athlete or an individual, you need to assess the whole. And that's what I think Evan's doing with this book. So check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting the show. We're going to have Psychic Visions coming out shortly, signed with Electrocast and my co-host and best friend, Megan Kane will be on that show as well. We'll be debuting that in about next 30 days or so. So definitely check out that. And thank you so much for tuning in. Stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? 
Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.